for Lent, we spend a lot of time taking out things. That was kind of the purpose of Lent, using our garden plant metaphor. We were talking about weeding and developing deeper roots. A lot of you fasted. We gave you money to give away. We've heard great testimonies from what you did with the $30. A lot of you prayed for something specifically. I heard great testimonies. And that's kind of Lent, is, is really taking things away. Now we're in the Easter season, which is really about seeing things grow. So the new challenge between now and the end of May is to do something. Just to do something. Um, in Genesis 1 and 2, we're going to look at, it, look at that in a minute. God's original commission to Adam and Eve was to make something of the world. He gave them this garden, and he said, just do something with it. It's three lines. Be fruitful and mu- multiply. You fill the earth and subdue it and rule over creation. That, that's it. It's a note card. It's not a thousand-page manual on what they were supposed to do. He said, you've been created in my image. Now go and do it. And so I want us to do something similar. I want you over the next few weeks to look for opportunities to make something of the world that God has given you. That's kind of an innate human desire. That's what we do. That's why you see what you see is because we've built things. Some people build things with their hands. Some people build things with their minds. But we, we create. That's part of what it means to be human. And so I want you to do that. You can bake cookies. That, can be, that might be what you do. That's making something of the world. It's taking flour, sugar, chocolate chips, not raisins, and it's putting those things together to make cookies. Fruit doesn't belong in dessert. We are. The food pyramid, <laughs> y'all seen it. Are they solid lines or are they dashed lines? They're solid. You don't cross solid lines, do you? No. So you keep desserts with desserts. Desserts, the only purpose is it's a means of conveying sugar to you. Anything that adds that process can go into dessert. Anything else goes somewhere else. Carrot cake, no. Nuts and brownies, no. Just sweets. So anyway, some of you do that. That's what you do. You, that's part of how you make something of the world is you bake. So do that and then give it to somebody. Take it to your neighbor as an expression of hospitality. That takes it from human culture to kingdom culture because hospitality is a value in the kingdom of God. You don't have to say anything. Just welcome to the neighborhood. We're glad you're here. Some of you, you do other things. You sew or you build decks or whatever it is that you do. Do those things and do it with the intention of blessing somebody else, of conveying some kingdom value. We'll talk about that more in the, in the coming weeks. I just want to plant that idea in your head. Between now and the end of May, I want all of us to look for opportunities to, to make something of the world. Some of you paint. Paint something. Some of you write. Write something. Some of you are great hosts. Host a cookout. That's creating culture. All of those things are making something of the world. There are very few things that we do that don't fall under that category of making something of the world, making something of what we've been given. So do that and do it in a way that blesses other people. So my uh, sophomore year of high school, I went on a mission trip to Jamaica. It was the first mission trip I'd ever gone on. I went with First Methodist Marietta. It's where I grew up. It was a team of mostly uh, high school students, and we had three jobs. We were supposed to help with church on Sunday morning. We were supposed to meet. There were, uh, there's a girl's home and a boy's home in the town that we were going to, and we are supposed to hang out with the boys and the girls, and we were supposed to build a house for a family that didn't have a house. Again, I was 15. I didn't have a lot of experience doing any of those things, but I, I felt pretty good. I felt I was competent. I felt like, yeah, I can help with the house, and as long as I don't have to draw the plans, I can figure that thing out, and I can, I'm a teenager. I can hang out with other teenagers. I've been to church my whole life. That shouldn't be a big deal. So I uh, get on the plane. We go to Jamaica. We stay at the missionary's house. His name is Mr. Brady. Don't know his first name. He wasn't warm and fuzzy, so we called him Mr. Brady. We, we, we stayed at his house, and every morning we did, like, team devotionals starting on Monday. We 
got there on a Saturday. I think we went to church Sunday. And then Monday when we started the project, we did team devotionals. And our leader would have something to say. And we would pray about whatever was going on that day. And, and we, would, we would worship. And um, after the, the first team devotional, there's a guy on our trip. His name was Jack. He was super nice. He was not being mean. But he said, Eldridge, that's my last name. Eldridge, you sure do sing loud for someone who's off key. And I said, really? I didn't know that. I, apparently, I'm tone deaf. I think I sound really good. If you sit next to me, you might not think I sound so good, but I feel like I sound just like everybody else, like Bo's up here and me and him. We're like this. We're <laughs> tracking with each other. I told the guys at 9 my mic was on the whole first worship set, but it wasn't coming through the speakers, thankfully, for all of us. I don't know if y'all can hear it in the monitors or not. It wasn't good. I, there's recordings of me singing back there when my mic's accidentally been on. They're not good. So, here, I, I, so I got dinged on this mission trip right off the bat. So then we go to this, this boy's home that has, I guess, orphans, uh, all ages, um, all the way up to 18. Soccer's big in Jamaica, so we're going to play soccer. I played high school soccer. I wasn't the best guy on the team. I wasn't the worst guy on the team. But I figured, hey, we can do this. Most of them didn't even have shoes. So I figured we had some type of an advantage. We're going to go out there and play. There was one guy in particular whose um, one of his legs had been amputated at the knee. So he had one leg with, that had a with a foot, another leg that just went down to his knee, and then he had a crutch. And so I felt sorry for him. I was like, oh, isn't that sweet? He's going to come out, and he's going to play, and let's take it easy on that guy. And it took just a couple of minutes to realize he'd learned how to use that crutch in a lot of different ways, as a weapon, as a... It, it was all kinds of things for him, and he could fly. I've never seen anybody move like that with one foot. He was better than us. That's another ding, to get beat by a team that has a guy with only one foot in soccer... It's not what you're looking for. So then we do this house. I'm not a construction guy. I will admit that up front. It didn't seem that difficult. The house, when I say house, don't, it's like what you build with Lincoln Logs. It's a 12 by 24 with um, a wall in between that divides it into two 12-foot rooms, two openings for windows on the front and the back, an opening for a door just like for a cross breeze, zinc roof, no plumbing, no electrical, no insulation, none of that. It's just a, it's just a, a box, basically, for this family so they can get in out of the weather. So we're doing this. Mr. Brady, being the kind of guy that he is, he supports the local economy. He gets all his wood from Jamaican sources, which he, sh which he should, absolutely. The only problem is the pieces aren't exactly straight. So the siding is this tongue and groove stuff that you're, it's supposed to fit down on top of itself, so it creates some seal. I don't know why we did that when the windows are just holes in the wall, but we didn't want seals. They, they didn't want gaps. So... The, the boards aren't exactly straight, and we're trying to smash them down on top of each other. Me and this other guy, um, it was our responsibility to do one of the small sides of the house, one of the ends. So we work all morning trying to get this thing together, and we lay the last board. Mr. Brady comes over and says, hey, you guys come down here with me for a minute. And I'm thinking, okay, we, maybe we won him over, and he's going to say, you guys did awesome. And he puts his arm around us, and we turn around. We're about 20 feet from the building. He says, what do you see? And we say, a wall. And he says, that's not what I see. What do you see? He says, I see a piece of, and then he says something that we can't say because we're being recorded. Not the bad word you're thinking of, but the less bad version of that. That's what he says. He sees, and then I can begin to see his perspective. It does have a little slope to it in general. We thought that that gave it character. He thought that made it not good. So he sends my friend up there and says, tear it down and start over. And so I'm starting to walk, and he puts his arm around me and says, no, why don't you just stay with me? I spent the rest of the time basically carrying his lunch around. 
Occasionally, he would start a nail and he would let me finish it, but that was it. There was no more building for me for the rest of the time. I, I carried his tools around is what I did for the next four or five days. So I got dinged again. And so kind of the moral of all of that is we all have limits, and sometimes it's painful figuring out what those limits are. This is Genesis 1, starting in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image and our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Skip over to chapter 2, pick up in verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Skip over to verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely... Die. There's a ton of stuff in there. We don't have time to get into it today. We'll kind of revisit some of these things over the next six weeks. We see people, men and women, are created in the image of God. That's a massive concept. We, don't, we, we can't get into it this morning, but it's there. The writer of Genesis goes to great pains to say we were created in the image of God. He says the same thing like three times in three verses, that men and women, everyone who's ever been created, Christian or not, doesn't matter, everyone who is alive, has been created in the image and likeness of God. That's the, for, to me, that's the foundation for everything we do as people. Human rights, again, Christian or not, that's the, to me the foundation for human rights. That's why we care about other people, because we're all created in the image and likeness of God. If we're the result of random mutations over time, if natural selection is the order of the day, then caring for the unborn or the sick or the poor or the disabled, it doesn't necessarily make a lot those things don't necessarily go together you got to come up with another foundation for why you're doing that if you believe that all people are created in the image of likeness of God then everyone has worth and dignity and we've got to preserve that we don't have time to get into that today second thing to be created in the image of, of God it means a lot at the minimum it means we're created in the image of a creator and a ruler in Genesis 1 and 2 Genesis 1 God is shown as a creator he makes everything Genesis 2, he's a ruler. He rules over what he's created. So for us to be made in his image and likeness means we're made in the image and the likeness of a creator and a ruler. That makes us creators and rulers. That's what we're talking about, making something of the world. That's a, that's a human thing. That's what we do. We make stuff. And so it's because we're created in the image of a guy who makes stuff. Now, we don't make stuff the way he makes stuff. He makes stuff out of nothing. We make stuff out of what he's given us. But that's who we are. And when I say rule, don't hear rule with an iron. That's not it. We're, think of yourself as a steward. God's created everything. God owns everything. We function, we rule under his authority according to his desires and purposes. We've talked before uh, in the ancient Near East when a king conquered a foreign land, he would set up a statue of himself to claim land and say, this is mine. 
They didn't have, there's no TV, there's no internet, there's no billboards to put up to say, you know, this is the guy in charge. You put a statue up so everybody in that country knew it's his. He's in charge. We function as those type of statues here on the earth. We're God's representatives. We're here to say to one another and to all of creation, this is God's. And it needs to function according to his plans and purposes for it. So again, when I say rule, don't hear some type of, it's not a power trip. It's a serving thing. It's stewarding what God has given us according to his desires and purposes. But this is the one that I want to focus on this morning. God put Adam and Eve in a garden. He gave them limits. They had a massive amount of freedom. But then he, he put parameters, boundaries, limits, structure to their freedom. This is, he created everything in the universe, and he put Adam and Eve in a garden. This is it, Adam and Eve. This is the area where you're supposed to work. We read that, I think it's in verse 7. He put Adam in the garden to work it. Not the, Adam didn't work the whole earth. Adam worked this one area. And within that, you can eat from any tree that you want to except this one. You can't eat from this one. There's freedom. Any tree that you want to eat from. And there's limits except for that one. There's freedom. Work the ground. Again, it's a note card. If you can imagine, God told just three basic commands and then pretty much say, go figure out how to do this type of trust that he has in us. He doesn't give us necessarily step by steps. It's just, go do this. You've been created in my image, so go make it happen in this area of land that I've given you. Freedom with limits. This is Deuteronomy 19.14. Don't move your neighbor's boundary stone set up by your predecessors in the inheritance you receive in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. That verse doesn't seem necessarily to have a lot to do with us. Let me see if I can give you a little background. When in Exodus, when God comes to Moses and says, you know, I'm going to deliver the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, his promise to them is to bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. You read that throughout Exodus. You're going to, I'm going to bring you into this land. They call it the promised land because it was promised to them. So you've got that in Exodus, in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The first five, first, or those are the second, it's the first five books of the Bible, take off Genesis, all about entering into this land. It's God setting up this covenant with his people saying, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people, and the sign of that is this land I'm going to give you. Joshua, that's the sixth book in the Old Testament, the first 12 chapters are about the Israelites taking the land. So there's, it's a lot of, it's bloody, a lot of fighting, a lot of war, it's, it's God giving the land to his people. That's what he's doing. Chapter 13 to 21, the second half, about the most boring chunk of the Bible you'll ever look at. It's a property deed. It's the king, God, saying, okay, you get this, and you get this, and you get this. And it's a bunch of rivers and mountains and cities that we don't know anything about. And he's saying to this tribe, there's 12 tribes, you get this, and to this tribe, this is your land, and whatever. Doesn't mean anything to us. Very important to these guys. So he's dividing up the land. What he's saying is, here's your inheritance. It reads like a will. Here's your inheritance. I'm giving you this land. And then within that, your tribe and a clan got some and a family got some. And your family, you put up boundary stones around your land to mark it off. It delineated. This is mine. This is ours. And if you start moving those things around, you're stealing. You're robbing somebody of their inheritance. It's a huge deal to move a boundary stone. What God has said is, I'm giving you this piece of land. Here's your garden, people, each group. This is what you get. 
And you mark that off. Nobody else can move that because it's what God has given to you and he's the king. He owns it. Such a big deal in Israel. If you sold your land because you were in debt, you were in debt and you had to pay your debts, you had to sell your land. Every 50 years, the debts were canceled and the land reverted back to its original owner. That's like you owe money and so you, pay, you sell your house to pay your debts. In 50 years, you get your house back. That's how big a deal property was. It was a sign that it was a sign of your inheritance. It was basically your piece of the kingdom of God, physically. Here's your dirt. It's going to stay with your family. It's almost like you can't get rid of it because it's going to come back to you every 50 years. Huge deal to have a slice of land. Massive deal to move the stone. Land is a limited resource. My property is mine. It's not yours. If you take it, then it's not mine anymore. What do they call it? States that surveyors lay out. You start moving that stuff around, you're, you're taking somebody else's property. You can't do that. And that's the same thing, same thing with these boundary stones. This is Psalm 16, 5 and 6. Lord, you've assigned me my portion and my cup. You've made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. It's David talking, and he's not talking about dirt anymore. He's talking about life. And that's where this hits for us. God still assigns boundary stones. He still sets limits to our freedom. It's not dirt. It's not geographical. It's life. Throughout the New Testament, you'll see the, the, word, or the, the word inheritance. There's something that God desires to give us as he's our father. We have an inheritance in him. We have a life in him. We've talked before about the good works God has created for us to do. That's part of this inheritance that he wants to give you, give you, forgiveness of sins, love, joy, peace, all of the fruit of the Spirit. There are things that God wants to give to each of us. There's a life that he wants each of us to live, and he's laid the boundary stones for that. He set the limits for that life for each of us. Again, it not, has nothing to do with dirt. It has everything to do with life. There's something that he has. There's a life he has for you. Psalm 139, we've talked about that before. God knit us together in our mother's womb. He knows our strengths, our weaknesses. He knows what we love. He knows what we hate. And he's created this life for us to live. Just like he put Adam and Eve in a garden and said, this is your, do it. Do what you're going to do. Work this garden. He does the same thing for us. He puts us in a life and says, do it. Work. Make something of this. He sets the boundaries. The temptation from the enemy was to move the fences. Did God really say you can't eat from that tree? That one that, did he really say that? That's what the enemy said to, to Eve. And she wound up, she, she bit. And a lot of us do the same thing. We move our boundary stones all the time. Some of us move them out, and some of us move them in. But we move them. We, we're not content with the, the limitations God has put, the parameters, the scope, whatever word you want to use around our life. And so we start monkeying around with the boundary stones, and it creates a whole lot of problems. Some people pull theirs in, people who maybe are you're fearful, you're afraid of disappointing other people, you might be insecure, you might be lazy, but you pull your boundary stones in, and you don't live up to your full capacity. This is what God, this is the life he has for you, and this is what you live. For whatever reason, you pull your stones in. Now, in the promised land, everything touched. It was, there weren't these massive amounts of territory that were supposed to be 
uncultivated, that, that were supposed to remain wild, and that every he divided God divided up the whole thing. Everybody got some of it, and the picture I get is that it all touched. Everything was contiguous, all of the plots. What happens if I pull in my boundary stone is I've created this swath of territory that's untamed. There's no statue there that says this is God's and it's going to be run according to his plans and purposes. It's not yours because that's not where God has brought your boundary stone. It's mine, and I've forfeited that. And I've made my territory smaller than it needs to be, and so it's created this wild area where the Lord's presence is not. That's something that's mine. And you can see that in families. You can see it in schools. We can see it in the government. We can see it in all kinds of different spheres where individually we have pulled in our, we've taken up our stakes and we've moved them in for whatever reason, because we're afraid or, again, we're lazy or we don't have time or whatever. And it creates these pockets of territory in our community where there is no statue that says this thing's going to be run according to the desires of the Lord. A lot of us have attempt, are tempted to move our boundary stones out. It's the curse of competence. You're good. You're good at a lot of things. So because you're good at a lot of things, you get asked to do a lot of things. And because you're such a sweet person, you say, okay. And what you've done is, this is what the Lord wants for you, but I ask you to do something, and somebody else asks you to do something, and you keep saying yes, and so you're moving your boundary stones out farther and farther. Not only are you stealing from somebody else, you're encroaching on somebody else's property. That's bad. But you are living outside of the limitations that God has set for you, and it will kill you. You're, you're going to be stressed out. You're going to be anxious. You're going to feel like you're just surviving. You've got all these balls that you're trying to keep in the air, and it literally is you keeping all these balls in the air. You've, you've stepped outside of this realm that God has created for you. Here's the Garden of Eden, and you're over here in somebody else's yard. You don't have any business being there. You can't carry that, and it's going to crush you at some point. It's not just that you're not going to do a great job. You might do fine because you're a talented person, but it's going to be you making it happen, and at some point your resources are going to run out because you're limited, and it's going to kill you. That's the temptation I think many of us feel. Let's move these boundary stones out. Let's do more. Some of it is well-meaning. Well, I can help, so I'm going to help, or there's an opportunity, so I'm going to do it, or she needs me. We, whatever. At some point, we all have to realize we've got limits. We have limits, and we've got to live within them. And it's not because God is punishing us. It's because he knows us well. Now, when you hear limits or boundaries, we put a number on everything, and so we start trying to figure out, well, how does that compare? Is your field bigger than my field? Is your garden bigger than my garden? And, and we start doing that. God doesn't keep score the way we do. The Bible says we look at outward appearances and God looks at the heart. That's not just some sweet little thing that we say to people who can't quite cut it. Well, God looks at your heart. It's okay. It's, it's truth. In Luke 21, we've talked about this before, there's a story of an old woman. Jesus is sitting next to the offering bucket. An old woman throws in two cents. And there are a bunch of guys coming in throwing in hundreds and thousands of dollars. And Jesus says that woman put in more. Now, either he doesn't know what he's talking about because two cents is not more than $100 in any monetary system, or he's judging by a completely different standard. And it's probably that. He's judging by a completely different standard. He can say this woman who put in two pennies put in more because he's not looking at the outward appearances. He's not just looking at the dollar amount. He's looking at the heart. It says the woman gave out of her poverty everything that she had. 
God doesn't keep score. We look and say, that woman had a really small garden. And these other guys who were loaded had a really big one. They must be doing better than her. It's not what Jesus saw. It's not what he saw. It's not the way he evaluated that at all. So don't, don't start comparing your boundary stones to somebody else. In my line of work, one of the things you do, when, when I meet other people who do what I do, we always try to figure out who has the bigger church. We don't just come right out and say it. I always lose, by the way. So we don't, we don't just come right out and say it because that's not very Christian. We have these code questions that we ask. People say something like, oh, you didn't send your associate to this. Because when I say, no, I don't have one, then that slots them on where I am. There are all kinds of ways that we can, people, we can do that. And you might be the same way. You know, we put a number on everything. And when, it, when I start talking about boundaries and limits, we want to know what they are. And I want mine to be bigger than yours. Most, maybe you're not that way. But that's, to me, that's attempt, and that's why we, we spread them out because it shows that God likes us or we're competent or we have a lot of responsibility or people need us or whatever. And it's just wrong. It's dead wrong. You'll be living outside of the... Imagine an umbrella. You've got, your umbrella is so big, and when you move your boundary stones, you step out from underneath that umbrella, you're going to get wet. That's what happens when you move them out, when you expand the limits that God has for you. I grew up over here in Park Manor off of Kennesaw Avenue by the mountain. Small neighborhood. It was a subdivision. We had, I don't know, maybe 50 houses. We played in our front yard all the time. No, not a lot of cars came through. My parents never worried about us playing in the front yard. They didn't worry about the ball rolling in the street or anything like that. Now uh, I have three children, and we live on a, on a through road. It's not a subdivision. It's a cut-through road between um, Polk Street and Stewart Avenue, and there are a lot of guys that use it to cut through. And my wife is vigilant about kids playing in the front yard. We have to have armed guards on the street before she'll let them do it because she doesn't want the ball rolling into the road because some, somebody's going to come flying down at 40 miles an hour and they're not going to see our... You know how that works. We could put in a fence which would limit our children's freedom. It would say you can only go this far and no farther. But would it actually limit their freedom? No. It would give them more freedom to play because then they wouldn't have to worry anymore about the ball rolling in the middle of the road. And we wouldn't have to worry about the ball rolling into the middle of the road. The limits actually allow you to exercise the freedom you've been given. Without that, it's anarchy. Nobody likes that. It's chaos. Nobody likes that. Nobody lives in that for long. We've got to have some structure, and God provides it. He says, here are the boundary lines. In this, you run. Run within this. Just don't get outside of this. This is the Garden of Eden. Just work it. You can't eat from that one tree. Eat from any of the others that you want to. And he says the same thing to us. This is your life. Do it. Live it. Just don't step outside of it. That's it's not your territory. That's not your yard. So he puts these structure, these structures in place. And our responsibility is to say, all right, with David, it's pleasant. It's hard for us. We don't like limits. I want the freedom to choose. I want to be able to move in a different direction if I need to. I don't want to say somebody else has set the boundary markers for my life. But what if the person that set the boundary markers for your life knew you better than anybody else and knew the future? Could you trust him? What if this guy who set the boundary markers for your life 
loves you enough to die for you so that you could live in freedom? Would you trust him to set them? David says this from the throne. He's king of the hill, top of the totem pole. The ten years prior to that were hellacious for him. Awful. He can look back and say, the boundary lines for me have fallen in pleasant places. He can look back at the junk from his life and realize that was, that was, it was fine. Those, those were the limits that God placed on his life, and ultimately that got him to, this, to be the king. You might not ever be the king. I'm never going to be the king. And I've got to be okay with that. I've got to recognize the guy that set the limits for me loves me more than anyone else, knows me better than anyone else, and he knows the future. If I can't trust that guy, let's pray.